Welcome back to another episode of the Pursuit of Progress. As always, this is Adam here, and I'm with my co-host Ben. Got a really polarizing but very important topic to discuss today, and something that I know Ben is very passionate about. And we're just going to be talking through basically whether or not you should ditch the degree in 2024. Meaning, if you're looking into going to college, or maybe you're a parent and have some children approaching that age, whether or not you know college is as important as it was in the past. But the, today's topic is really going to be more about the repercussions or at least just the understanding of what is happening after signing on the dotted line and receiving a student loan. So Ben, welcome to another episode. Good to have you back with me, bud. So glad to be back. And we have a message today that needs to be heard. Um, you know, it's going to impact hundreds of thousands or potentially millions of protect, uh, prospective students that are going to be going to college uh, here in the next couple of years. So really, really important message today. It's great, man. Yeah. So I wanted to just start off with, you know, a couple points and I'm just going to kind of share these guys, share these with you guys first. And then Ben going to hope that you can just kind of elaborate a bit on these. But, you know, the first one, the average federal student loan debt for an individual. So per person is currently at, this is the beginning of 2024, $37,090. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Ben, I think you've probably seen that go up over the past few years. I'm sure that's something you're probably pretty familiar with just being a loan officer. Is that correct? Um, yeah. You know, that's one thing that I love about my job. I always call it a window into the American economy because I get to pull credit. I get to look at consumers credit all day long. So I get to see what type of debts they have, what they're making payments on and where all of their money is going. And over the years, student loan balances are getting higher and higher and higher. And even though the balance, you know, for the average American, as you just mentioned, is right around 40,000, it is not uncommon at all to see customers uh, and consumers that have student loans, 80,000, 120,000. I've even seen, you know, consumers that have student loans of 300, 400, 500,000. So all of that is out there. Wow. That is, it's a long uphill battle if you're at four or $500,000 in student loan debt. Um, I know you mentioned a comment earlier when we were, before we got live on the call today, but you're talking about just the uh, rate of increase as well. I think you said something like eight times faster than the income wage. Explain that a little bit more. Yeah, and that's you know that, that's one of the the big debates right now. Um, and you kind of touched on this when the show started, but the cost of education has just rapidly increased over the years and the decades. Um, think about when we were at college 20 years ago, the cost of education now in 2024 is so much more expensive. And the cost of education is increasing at a rate eight times faster than what wage income is. Um, and that's that's the big debate where like these degrees now are so expensive that a lot of career fields and career paths no longer have the capacity to support or pay for the specific degree. And so because the cost of education is so much higher, you have to be very intentional with what kind of degree you're going to get, because you want to make sure that the whole reason that you go to school, and we all know this, college graduates make more than high school graduates. So if you have a degree, you know, you likely will earn more, but at what cost? That is what we're not asking ourselves. And that is the big issue in 2024. Yeah, when I was looking at some data before we jumped on today, I noticed that it was, again, this up-to-date data for the beginning of the new year that about 25% of college graduates do not make more than the typical high school grad. 
Um, that's per Bloomberg. Um, so just really understanding that cost versus benefit and just understanding too, or the lack of understanding for people that are in that 18, 19 year old range where, you know, I think back to when I was that, that age, I mean, I really did not know what I wanted to do with my life. I think most people probably don't. And just being able to have that decision made then that's going to mm -hmm. drastically affect not only your, your rest of your life, but just again, this financial commitment that for, I would imagine a lot of people, the reason some of this data is what it is, is because they commit to an education of something that they define, they realize later on down the road after a year or two of going to those classes, that is not what they're really passionate about. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And how many 18 or 19 year old kids can say, you know, I have it all figured out. I know exactly what I want to be, what I want to do, what my career path is, you know, how I'm going to earn a living. The reality is, is a very, very small percentage. I was in the same boat as you where I kind of had some ideas. Initially, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. Then I kind of changed to, you know, business, I wanted to go into equities. And then I ended up as, uh, you know, in, in the mortgage industry. And so, you know, but with the cost of education right now being as high as it is, the reality, and it's an unfortunate reality, um, prospective students, like gone are the days where you can kind of figure it out on the fly, like both of us did. You know, we're going to school and we're figuring it out. We're kind of getting a sample, what we like, what we don't like. And it's a very, very sad reality. But the reality is, is you can't do that anymore because the cost of education is so high. If you spend two years at college or three years, and then you decide that you want to you know, change paths or pans, plans, the cost that you've already incurred is so high that it is very, very difficult to change plans or change course. That's incredible, man. So, you know, just kind of going back to the first point about just the, um, the average about right around $40,000 per individual. Collectively, there's about 43 million Americans right now that have student loan debt, and that totals at $1.6 trillion, and that's for the federal student loan debt. You had mentioned that some news actually came out earlier today. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, what's interesting, right before we went live here, um, President Joe Biden announced $5 billion in student loan forgiveness. Um, so, you know, if you're someone that is going to be eligible for that, I am excited for you. I applaud you. Like like last time from last year, you know, we will need to see how it shakes out and if that is upheld. But the the concern with the student loan forgiveness, and this has always been my argument, is that it doesn't do anything to change the fundamental flaws that we have in our higher education. You know, really what it is, is just a Band-Aid. It doesn't, uh, you know, no one is still advocating for the student. Um, it does nothing to address the outrageous costs of higher education, and it does really nothing to address the issues. And I don't believe that forgiving student loans is the answer. I mean, there needs to be massive radical change in a lot of different areas um, of education, including education reform, cost, benefit, all of it. And I'm excited for those that are going to be eligible or you know get some student loans forgiven. But I'm still critical at the same time because it really does nothing to solve any of the actual problems that we have. And I think I was very fortunate to not have student loan debt. Thanks, mom and dad. But I think, too, if I was and I was somebody that had been very, um, you know, diligent and responsible and had paid that off early because I wanted to, for example, 
get a house and go through the pre-approval process and, you know, not have some debt like this on my, um, affecting my chances to get qualified, mm -hmm. you know, somebody like that, that's been, you know, a little bit more pro uh, proactive on paying it off. They're kind of out of luck. You know, they've done what they're supposed to do yet. They get the short end of the stick. That's exactly right. Um, those, those individuals that may have been eligible, but were responsible, um, managed their debts correctly, lived within their means or below their means, you know, what are they getting or what is, you know, what is in it for them? So um, that's, that's the other side of the story here. And that's the other thing that has a lot of other folks upset that did handle their student loans, um, you know, in a responsible way. So I'm not saying that I have the answers, but what I am saying is that, you know, these are things that we really need to think through. Um, and we also need to really just ask ourselves as students, as parents, what is the most responsible path to solve this on an individual basis? And I think that's really where the conversation needs to start. It's at home. And those are the types of conversations that I'm having with my kids already. And if they want to go to college, I've, I've let them know I'm going to support you. I'm here to encourage you. But at the same time, if you're going to college, we're going to be very intentional. You're not just going to go to college to have a good time. We need to have a plan. We need to talk about it. And a lot of times there are more cost effective options out there, like going to a community college for the first two years and getting a lot of those kind of general education classes knocked out at a much lower cost and then transferring up to a state university. But you know, I think the way that we look at that sometime as a society, we kind of look down on community colleges or, you know, institutions like that. And it's wrong. Um, and that is where we as a society and a culture, we really need to start changing our minds and shifting our minds about that. Because I can promise you, you know, a lot of times this student loan debt, it has a tendency to hang around for years, decades, even multiple decades. I've seen student, you know, customers out there who took out student loan debt in their teens and their 20s, and they're in their 40s and 50s, and that student loan debt is still hanging around, and the balances haven't gone down. A lot of times, and in my criticism with student loans, you know, you have the debate, is student loan get debt good debt or is it bad debt? Well, I believe that debt that allows you to produce it, produce income or cash flow or debt that allows you to increase the possibilities or the prospects of, you know, increased income, that's good debt. Mm -hmm. um, but like real estate debt, you know, you have the potential for cash flow. And then there's also collateral, which is, you know, the home, uh, which is an asset. Student loan debt, the individual is the collateral. So there's no underlying asset. And then when it comes to student loan debt, there's really no way to get rid of it. It's not eligible for bankruptcy. Uh, it's not eligible for foreclosure. And once you have it, the only way to get rid of it is pay it off or die or uh, get it forgiven. And even with Biden's plan, you know, the plan from earlier last year, it, it was up to $10,000 per individual. And that, um, you know, that was retracted. Uh, but that, that's what the initial plan was. And for someone that has sixty or $70,000 of student loan debt outstanding, well, you know, $10,000 is, is a big deal. But what is it really doing at the end of the day? You know, it's reducing your student loan balance from $70,000 down to $60,000. Is that going to be life-changing? Is that going to solve any problems? It's not. Um, and that's the, the criticism. On, on something like a house or even a car loan, for example, you know, you can refinance that debt. You can trade the car in. 
Um, you can restructure the debt on a, on a home. Same thing. You can sell the asset. There's a lot of different ways to, you know, pay off the debt. The home is going to go up in value over time. So you have so much more flexibility with student loans. You don't have any of those options. Mm -hmm. So what's, and to be honest, I just really, this is asking as a question personally for myself to understand better, you know, Buying a house is, is a different example here. You know, you need to get pre-qualified. You need to show that you're able to pay this back. You have to put 15, 20% down up front. Again, you have to qualify, which is your income and, you know, be a strong, um, secure um, partner with the bank, whoever's loaning you the remainder of the money. With a student loan, what are the, even the qualifications to be approved? I mean, is there ever a scenario where you don't get approved? Like how, what are the, you know, restrictions or how does that part, part of the process go? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's another great question. And that's also one of my biggest criticisms. You know, when we had the housing crash in 2008, the reason that we had the crash is because mortgages and lending became too accessible. It was too easy to get for too many Americans. Um, you know, back in 2008, when we had the crash, there were a lot of subprime loans. And a lot of the loans originated during that time were subprime. And with subprime loans, um, you didn't have to show a job or, you know, well, you don't qualify for this loan. So we're just going to make up your income. We're going to say that you make $10,000 a month. So you qualify for this loan, even though you don't. And that was allowed. Um, oh, you don't have a job. Well, we're just going to leave that part of the application, uh, that part of the application blank. We're just not going to fill it out. This was allowed. And that is why we had the housing crash is because so many individuals got into toxic loans that they had that they they had no way and they did not have the ability to actually repay this debt and lending was too accessible too many people got into these types of loans and then they couldn't repay them and then that's where the foreclosures happened and it brought down the entire american housing sector and the entire industry uh, which took years and years to recover and i've been shouting this from mountaintops that you know, the same thing is happening in the student loan world. Um, it, it's a little bit different because a lot of these student loans are, are federal student loans. Um, but, you know, if you're a student, you don't have to demonstrate the ability to repay. You don't actually have to show that you can repay any of this stuff. And so, you know, it's very, very easy to get a student loan. What happened in 2008 when lending was very easy for everyone to get. Well, if you remember, there was a huge run up in prices of homes and then there was the crash. And what we're experiencing in the student loan market is there's been a huge run up in the cost of education because it is so accessible for everyone. So that's one of the reasons why the costs have gone up so much. And then because it's so accessible, you know, we have this, this path that we think everyone needs to go down. And this is another thing that I'm very critical of is that you know, not everyone needs to go to college. There are other options out there. You can, um, you know, go be an apprentice. You can, you can have a mentor. You can do other things. Just because you go to college or don't go to college does not mean that you're going to be a success or failure, um, or if you have a degree or not. But that's how our society has trained everyone to think, and it's wrong. Um, and so, my biggest things with student loans is that the student loan characteristics, which we talked about earlier, are incredibly toxic. Even if there is a benefit. And number one, uh, number two, uh, just the ability to repay. No one is advocating for the students. So when these students go and sign up for college, 
they literally have no idea what they're signing up for. These are 18, 19, 20 year old kids. And they aren't thinking, you know, what is this going to mean for me five or 10 years down the road? You know, they're thinking, well, I want to go with my friends and hang out with the dorms. I want to get this college experience. And student loans have become so normalized in our society that everyone's doing it. So they're doing it, not realizing how big of an impact it's going to have later in their life when it does, you know, when, when they do want to buy a home and do some of these other things. Yeah, I think back, and we talk a lot about this, but just, you know, I think back to my college experience. I went to CU Boulder, go Buffs. And I just think about, you know, what I gained mostly from my college education. And yeah, I, you know, got some formal education with business and marketing, but more than that, it was the experience. For me, it was also studying abroad for a year. That was probably definitely the highlight of my college experience. So there are certain aspects of a, you know, four-year um, university type experience, whether it be Greek life or just, you know, being out on your own for the first time and, you know, meeting people and kind of growing into the person that you are, all that, you know, stuff that you wouldn't really be able to um, have if you just went straight into the workforce. But, you know, with my crystal ball, just looking into the future and just how much technology is always evolving today, for example, being on a, a virtual call with you like this, yeah, there has to be a point when the majority of universities just really adopt some form of virtual classroom experience to a larger scale where it's not just this University of Phoenix or, you know, there's a few of those out there, but mm -hmm. that needs to also, I feel like at some point be just as highly regarded as a traditional university, but also just the price point of that, because it's got to be, you know, so much cheaper without the brick and mortar, um, you know, buildings and all that stuff. You still have to obviously pay the, pro the professors and all the other, you know, administrative type stuff, but getting that price point down where it's such a disparity between a traditional college that people just, it's a no brainer. They're like, well, you know, yes, I do want a formal education. I do want to pursue a career that needs a four-year degree mm -hmm. yet, you know, a lot of those you don't need to be in person for other than maybe, um, you know, doctors, people that are working with their hands or there's some form of lab or even, I guess with some, it's also just public speaking and understanding how to, you mm -hmm. know, interact with people. But I just feel like there's gotta be a point when that transition happens at a larger scale. Yeah. I mean, something, something needs to happen, you know, in the college athletic world, um, there was always the question, should these college athletes get paid? Um, and the floodgates finally opened on that, you know, a handful of years ago where, you know, college athletes were really kind of almost taken advantage of by these universities and these institutions. And, you know, they, they, a lot of times they would get a scholarship, but then, you know, they would sacrifice their bodies. And a lot of, you know, especially football players would have lifelong, you know, brain damage or other injuries. And now, and now they are allowed and eligible to get paid through the NIL. Um, but the pendulum has swung, you know, so far in the other direction that now that's unhealthy because it's, you know, in the athletic world, it's just totally running riot. I mean, it's out of control, um, in my opinion. And, and something does need to be done just with, with the cost of education. And I agree with all of your points there. I mean, there's no reason that someone shouldn't be able to, you know, take an online course, learn from an online instructor at a tenth of the cost. Because the reality is, is, you know, the amount of resources that's costing the university, you know, you're talking about one instructor with a formal plan for the semester, um, you know, maybe some other things. But if someone's taking a class online versus in person, the tuition costs should reflect that. And right now, 
those options don't exist and the costs are so high that it's just becoming cost prohibitive for a lot of individuals. And that's not what learning, you know, I, no one is a bigger believer in education and learning than me, but it needs to be done the right way in the appropriate setting from the right foundation. And one last, just kind of, again, the crystal ball that I think about with this, this topic is if, you know, you go to that virtual business model of a university, instead of having a cap at a hundred students in a class or even 500 students in a class, What's to prohibit you from having a class that maybe has 10,000 students? And because you have 10,000 students, yes, they're not paying as much, but still the overall um, revenue being generated is more, where then you can have the teaching on a business course, or you can have these you know, higher level um, kind of unobtainable professors or just people teaching the classes that maybe couldn't be um, before. I, I don't know. I just thought that would always be kind of a different take as well as um, just you know who could be included in the in the universities but yeah that, that's such a great point too one of my I, I also went to cu boulder as well and one of the most famous or one of the classes that made the biggest impact on me is where we had um famous individuals in the business field would come in and give a lecture um we had uh david orc come in who started uh, the vacuum company orc um, we had the editor of the Denver Post. Uh, we had like the second in command at Pepsi. Um, you know, not not the CEO, but it was like the CFO. Uh, we had Eric Weimerheimer came in, um, who was blind and you know hiked all seven peaks, uh, the highest peak on each continent. That was really really impactful. Uh, we had the founder of Celestial Celestial Seasonings from uh, the tea company come in and that class was just incredibly impactful because we had the opportunity to listen to real life leaders in their field come in and talk about their life their business their best practices their daily habits um, and of all of the classes that i took that was the one that stuck out the most yeah, it's just some of the stuff just seems like it's not rocket science, yet nothing changes. I don't know. Maybe that's me also being a little bit ignorant because I don't pay that close attention to this. It's not high on my list of things I've got my radar on, but it really also just goes back to the elementary, middle, and high school age kids and just having a more of an influence at that earlier age where then they're given these prompts to think about this kind of stuff and then hopefully just kind of figure out what they're more interested in at an earlier age and have that decision be a little bit more clear to them when the time comes. I just think that, you know, when you talk about your kids and how well you're doing with, you know, really being intentional about some of that stuff when it comes to just finances and budgeting and, you know, having goals and figuring out what's important to them and really working towards those things. Um, it just seems like if the, if we started at that age and mm -hmm. really perfected that first, I think a lot of these other um, issues would eventually kind of, you know, um, iron themselves out, but the the pushback that I always get on that is because I, I bring up all of those same points and everyone always says, well, those things should be taught at home by the parents. And my counter argument to that is that our education system has been this way for over 200 years. You know, parents don't know how to uh, manage their personal finances. I know that from experience every single day going through credit reports. Um, parents don't know how to you know, they don't know what the best insurance option is or how to file tax returns. They don't know how to um, 
you know, a lot of time nutritional health, like our, our nutrition is like the worst it's been ever. So a lot of these skills that we're talking about, parents literally don't have those skills and they can't teach them. And so I agree with your thought there hundred percent, you know, our education system was put in place back in the 1800s over two centuries ago um, by John D. Rockefeller and other industrialists in the 1800s. And the reason for that is because we were in the middle of the industrial revolution. Um, you know, what am I describing? What has eight hour days, two 15 minute breaks and a 30 minute lunch? Am I talking about our education system or life in corporate America? Yeah. You know, they're both very similar. It's no coincidence that our school system is set up the way that it is because you know, what, what they needed in the 1800s was factory workers, factory owners. And so these kids would go to school. They had eight hour days, two 50 minute breaks by a bell when there's a change in the class or, you know, it's recess time. And that's what they do on a factory floor. There are bells that go off. And so we're being indoctrinated to live and think a certain way based off of what was needed at the time. There are no, you know, there's, there's very little life skills that are actually taught here in the United States. Um, I'm a volunteer, I'm a volunteer cross country coach uh, for a high school. And we have exchange students on the team every year. And one thing that's really unique about the exchange students is they start learning their second and third languages in the first grade. And so the German exchange students, they actually have a class in first grade called English. And they start learning that you know, and then that is a real life skill. If you're going to learn a second language as a kindergartner or first grader, and then by the time that you get to high school, you are completely proficient in that language. I mean, that, that is impactful. And those are the types of things that we need to be doing here, teaching life skills, you know, physical health, nutritional health, mental health, how to deal with adversity. Um, and then of course, personal finance, you know, it's something that, you know, all of those things we need to deal with as individuals every single day, yet none of that stuff is taught. And, you know, if you are an adult and if you are a contributing member of the American economy, what's one thing all of us need every single day? Well, one of those things is money, yet there is no education about money. There's no education about debt. And Americans have no clue how to, you know, manage, use money and debt appropriately. No clue. So one of my, it's uh, and it's not an accident. The system literally wants you dumb, broke, and compliant. And a little teaser alert. I'm excited to check out your latest uh, YouTube video episode that's premiering hopefully in the next few days. Kind of right about that exact topic, correct? That's right. Yeah. On Tuesday of next week, which is the 23rd, it's titled, They Want to Keep You Poor. You left the dumb and... uh don't broke stupid. Just you just left it at just poor. Um, yeah, results are still pending, but it looks like it's going to be that. But I do go over that in the video, and it's it's not dumb in the sense that yeah. you know an individual they, they just want you uninformed in these certain areas. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, one of my uh, favorite. He's an older uh, influencer. His name's Jim Rohn, R-O-H-N. If you guys aren't familiar with him, Love definitely Jim. look him up. He's kind of one of the OGs, one of the original gangsters of self-improvement type, um, you know, whether it be uh, books. I don't know, he's, just, he's just a great guy to follow if you guys don't. But a, uh, a quote that I really like of his is, and I think yeah. that's so true on a lot of different levels, but, um, you know, when it comes to, you know, what we're talking about today, I think that's relevant to, 
to some people. Again, there's a lot of people out there, though, that do need to go get a four-year degree or maybe even pass that. We have some great close friends that we both mutually have that are, you know, very successful and they're very successful because they've, you know, followed their career path that they need for their careers. And um, now they're reaping those rewards. But Mm -hmm. um, for the majority, not majority, I shouldn't say that, but for a lot of people that don't fall into that bucket, and I, I say that bucket because I think I would be somebody that would fit into this bucket. It's not necessarily a requirement or something that just needs to be assumed um, that everybody needs to do. And kind of going off of that, I just wanted to share another um, thing that I pulled earlier that I thought was pretty interesting about employers. So it says, public and private sector employers are now changing their standards, broadening the meaning of qualified to include life experience, job history, or even certifications that do not require a bachelor's or associate's degree. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just getting to the point where employers are also realizing that, you know, we're limiting our pool of candidates by requiring a two or a four year degree in some cases where there's people that don't have that or that that are still much more qualified for the position they're offering and um, opening up their standards a bit more. That seems like that's really this, just a more of a recent um, thing that I've started seeing a lot more is this yeah. broadening of their um, employment uh, qualifications. Yeah, I, I'm seeing that as well. And you think of industries like what we do, like in mortgage, for example, I've done so many different roles within the industry and none of them require a degree, even advanced support roles like underwriting. Um, or closing, where you're literally managing hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions per transaction. And at at one point when I was at Wells Fargo, I mean, I was literally managing like $200 million. Um, College degree not required. Now I have a college degree, but for that specific role, that was not part of the job description. And, you know, what you just mentioned earlier, I love Jim Rohn, man. He's, I, I listen to him every night. Um, I watch all of his videos and his clips, and he is just someone that still speaks to me, even though he's no longer here. Um, I, I read a statistic, and I think the, the mistake that a lot of other people make, and I, I was guilty of this myself, is that I think a lot of people look at going to college and finishing college like you're finishing a race, you know? Oh my gosh, I'm done. I finished. I never have to study again. I never have to do anything again. And I read a statistic recently where, you know, whatever that individual's highest degree of education, whether it's high school or college, like something like 50% of people will never read another book their entire life. I mean, think about that. Yep. I shared some of the, that statistic as well. And I will, we'll definitely share that on the next one, or I'll put it in the show notes below on this one too, but it was yeah, mind boggling. Um, You're someone that, you know, got me turned on to reading and, you know, you really inspired me to do that four or five years ago. And, and since then, I mean, I have been a daily reader and I can tell you that has changed my world. I mean, I'm a radically different person in 2024 than I was in 2018 and a big part of that is because I read now every single day. I'm constantly reading. I have specific times dedicated in the morning to read. And I have specific times dedicated. I, I read twice a day. I read a half hour in the morning, half hour in the evening. Um, my morning book is more on habits, self-improvement, how to better yourself. And then my evening reading is is more for fun. But it's still it's 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 typically some type of like autobiography. So right now I just started Made in America last night, which is the Sam Walton biography and his story 
of how he started Walmart. And I always say, you know, here in America, dude, we have so many amazing stories like this. Who needs fiction? Why would I go waste my time reading fiction when I can read about a guy who started, you know, someone who started off as, you know, living in Arkansas, poor growing up and went on to become the wealthiest person and wealthiest family in America or in the world. It's crazy. It's and, awesome. and you can learn so much along the way. Yep. I was only reading Boxcar Children and the Hardy Boys back in the day when I could have been probably a few few people, uh, a few rungs up on the ladder if I would have uh, been more intentional with the books I was reading. Box I want to share. Uh, yeah. I remember that one. Yep. I'm still waiting for a Boxcar Children movie to come out. I don't know why they <laughs> haven't done that yet. And I will, I will go see that if that comes out. Um, I thought this was just another interesting, just kind of a quote to give you guys. This is from the National Center for Education. So this was actually a, um, an article that I was reading earlier that was from about, I think it was about nine months ago. So it's really reflecting more on the um, late, 2002, late 2022, early 2023 time period. Fewer than two thirds of students complete college within six years according to the National Center for Education Statistics. That includes nearly 40% of people who took out college loans between 2012 and 2017 that did not finish after six years. The default rate among those borrowers is three times as high as the rate for borrowers who did not earn a diploma. So again, it's just saying that the default rate for borrowers who did not earn a diploma, three times higher for those that are... Um, I don't know. I just, I just thought that was kind of a very interesting statistic. Just, you know, and, and, that, and that's the thing. If you take out student loan debt and you don't graduate, well, guess what? You got the student loan debt and no degree. And again, fewer than two thirds complete. So, and that's after six years. Imagine what the six year total dollar amount is. Um, it's just, yeah. yeah and just these are, we just, as a society, as a culture, you know, we need to get rid of this label. I, I remember as a kid, like my parents, my grandfather um, were, were always pushing me to go to college. And and the reason they were doing that is because they wanted me to better myself. They wanted me to, you know, what they wanted is they wanted me to develop disciplines and learn how to follow through and be committed and accomplish something. That That's what a college degree represented. And I think it still does represent a lot of those things. My whole point and my argument is that you can, you know, what, what they're talking about were skills. And it is possible to develop those same skills in other ways at a fraction of the cost. And that is not the conversation that's being had. For example, what if I gave, you know, what if a high school student had the option of going to college for four years and paying $150,000 you know, in education, either whether they paid that themselves or took out student loans, and it took up four years of their life, or what if that same student as an alternative option came and worked for me individually or you, and one of us mentored them, and it was one-on-one -on -one training or small group training every single day. They got to see me or see you, how you behave, the kind of conversations that you're having. At the same time, instead of going into debt or paying, they were getting compensated. And during all of this, they're developing real life skills. They're developing connections, they're networking, they're learning how to self-sustain. And these opportunities are out there and they're possible. 
but this is the conversation that's not being had. And, and, and it needs to be had because it's important and there are other ways to do this. And I've talked to my kids about this. Like if you want to like come into, you know, my, my whole thing with them is that, you know, I, I believe the other thing about college is that college spits a lot of people out and they, they want to go look for a good job, you know, with a, with a high salary. But the problem with that is that when you're looking for a good job, you know, typically you're going to be a salaried individual and you're not going to have any control over your time or your money. But what with what we do, well, what do we have control over? We have total control over our time and our money. And that's that's the other thing, learning how to leverage your money, learning how to leverage your time, learning how to leverage your resources. That's not taught in school. Mm -hmm. So since you're very an expert when it comes to the, you know, the lending side of things, I just was kind of curious. Let's just say that I have a pretty low, well, I don't want to say low, but let's just pretend as a scenario that I have two different people here. One person that has a $1,000 a month auto payment and one person that has a $1,000 a month student loan payment um, is one, obviously there's other factors that could come into play. You know, what's the total dollar amount that's owed, you know, different stuff like that, the amortization schedule, whatever it may be. But is there a, uh, if everything else is apples to apples, is there any other, um, is one favored over the other when it comes to getting approved for a loan, for a home loan? Yeah, that's, that's a, a great question. From a mortgage perspective, we will always take the auto loan, which is an installment loan at face value. And so if your credit report says that you owe you know $65,000 and your monthly payment is $1,000 a month, then we will use that $1,000 a month from a qualifying perspective. Um, from a student loan perspective, it can be very different. Um, a lot of times, regardless of what the payment is, there's going to be certain calculations depending on the loan program, whether it's a jumbo loan, a conventional, an FHA, of how that student loan is going to be calculated. And the other frustrating thing is those student loan guidelines are always being changed because there's there has not been a lot of transparency. And so you never, you know, with an auto loan, I can tell you auto loans are going to be looked at the same way today in 2024 that they were looked at 10 years ago in 2014, and they're going to be looked at the same way in 2034. With student loans, I can't tell you that because the guidelines have changed so often that they're constantly being updated and different loan programs look at different you know student loans in different ways. And so and sometimes it can be very difficult to predict what's going to happen. Um, and also for someone that does have a substantial amount of student loan debt, usually like you know eighty thousand plus, it can really negatively impact their opportunity to get qualified for a home purchase because whether that debt is in repayment or not, I mean you know you, you might have a scenario where someone's not even making a payment on a student loan because they're deferred. Well, just because you're not making payments and that student loan is deferred, more than likely we're still going to have to you know estimate what that payment is going to be. When it, when it comes out of deferment, and we're going to have to count that against you from a qualifying perspective. So even though that individual um, you know, today is not having to make a payment or in, in, incurring that expense, it's still included in their qualifying ratios. It can be very cost prohibitive, purchase prohibitive. What is the typical um, uh, length of a student loan? Is it you know, 20, 30, 40 years? Like what is, is there a standard repayment uh, Deadline? Is there, you know, an amount of years that's typical? 
Yeah, that's, that's another great question. I'll, I'll go back to the auto loan first because I know that you asked about that. But auto loans are typically anywhere from four to seven years. Yep. And so typically auto loans have a much shorter amortization term. Now, the negative is because the term is so low. That's why the payments are so much higher. Yep. And so my whole thing, you know, everyone always wants to get focused about cash flow. Or everyone always wants to get focused on the interest rate of an auto loan because the interest rates a lot of times they're they're not going to be terrible in auto loan, but it's not about interest rate; it's about cash flow, and cash flow is really about opportunity cost. And so, if you have a thousand dollar a month auto loan, even though it's going to be paid off in seven years, well, you know, what if you were contributing a thousand dollars a month toward your retirement account, or toward your investment account, or towards saving for an investment property? You know, to become wealthy and get out of the rat race, you have to really own assets. When it comes to student loans, um, you know, it really depends on the uh, the repayment approach. And that's another thing about student loans that is so misleading and confusing is that, you know, there are several different payment options. There can be the full term. But then one thing that's really popular right now, especially with millennials, is the income-based repayment. And yep how that's calculated is based off of your income today. So if you're someone that is earning 60,000, even if you have $100,000 in student loan debt and your payment's supposed to be 1500 a month, well, because you're 60,000, we're only gonna make you pay 300 a month. And that additional 1200, you don't have to pay. And your average millennial gets excited about that because I only have to pay 300 instead of 1500. What they don't understand is that that $1,200 difference is going back onto their loan and then it's getting charged interest. And then it's recompounding month after month after month. I've seen individuals start off with a student loan balance of literally 70,000 and have it balloon up to 400,000 over a period of 40 years. You do not want to be in that position because at that point it's out of control. And there's, there's no way, you know, if you have student loan debt of four or 500,000, there's no way you're ever going to pay that off. Yeah, never. That's why I sometimes wonder, uh, you talk about, you know, just people paying the bare minimum. It, like, Yeah, it's, it's never going to get paid. It's never going to get paid off uh, unless you die, similar to taxes, you know, unless you die. It's crazy. It, you know, it's and, and a lot of times it'll, if you have any other assets to your heirs, you know, it'll be taken out of the estate. And so not only are you burdening yourself, but you're also potentially burdening your your future heirs. Um, and, you know, my message to my kids and anyone that's considering, you know, some of these different options is what is the plan? You have to have a plan now. Um, I remember going, I had, a, I had a buddy that went to CU Kent, um, you know, back in the late 80s and 90s. And the way tuition worked back then is it was a flat tuition fee. So you would pay $2,000 for a semester and you could take as many classes as you wanted, as little or as many. And so if you wanted to take 18 hours for $2,000, you could do that. If you wanted to take six, you could do that. And there were so many more options and you could kind of figure things out along the way. Now, as we discussed, you cannot. Huh, I didn't know that. So I just wanted to, I'm just going to kind of close out on from my end, just one other quick thing. And then I'll, Ben, I'll let you um, have any last words as well. But um, just my advice or just my uh my thoughts on some of this stuff. I just wanted to kind of summarize for for people that are maybe uh, you know at a point where they do have either kids preparing to make this decision about whether or not to go to school, or what, maybe it's even somebody like ourselves that's maybe at a, 
a path in their life where they're just considering a career change and some of that might require them going back to school even later on in their life, maybe in their adult life to go back to school, mm-hmm. is just really understanding the importance of consistency. Yeah. Um, I yeah. feel like that's such a, a, a simple word, but it's in a kind of a buzzword, but just I think one of the biggest life lessons I've had over the last you know, two decades since I've graduated from college is this topic of consistency. Mm-hmm. What I mean by this is starting consistency earlier when you're considering what you want to, you know, go to college for, if you are going to go to college and just understanding that it's not going to be a, you know, overnight success where you see these people on social media that are getting in their yeah. private jets or driving around in their, you know, several hundred thousand dollar sports car that just didn't happen. You know, there was a huge story behind that, that took tens, if not, you know, hundreds of thousands of hours for Mm -hmm. them to get to that point. And if you're not staying consistent and just committed to understanding that success doesn't happen overnight and realizing that it's going to be a commitment for several years, if not decades to get to the point where you want to be. I've just had so many friends over the last, you know, 20 years that I've just, you know, seen firsthand, just, this consistently, um, I shouldn't use the word consistently, uh, just frequently uh, changing direction. You know, I want to do this. I do it for a year. I'm not immediately super successful from it and making a ton of money. So I'm going to, you know, switch gears and do something else. And it's just Mm -hmm. this uh, always changing career path that people now that are in their 40s, some people that I know that are no better off than as if they were just graduating from high school even. Um, and mm-hmm. it's fine if you do it something for a couple of years and just realize you're not passionate about it. You want to, you know, switch to do something else, but it's the, the people that are just doing this over and over and over again, it's just spinning their wheels and they're never going to get to where they want to be because of that. Yeah. Um, and just kind of really just understanding that and being intentional with the, uh, the decisions that are being made as a, for example, a high schooler that's getting ready to graduate, just understanding that. Um, it is such an important decision to make and they need to realize that it's not going to be an overnight, you know, success. Yeah. Everyone wants to get to the rainbows and the pot of gold and not, you know, that because that's what they've been sold. And the reality is it's a lifelong education. And that, that Jim Rohn quote, I love that because it's not about, you know, achieving a degree or getting some certification. It's about improving yourself and learning and educating yourself for the rest of your life. And that's why, you know, to go back to these biographies that I read, dude, it, it, you know, there is a struggle. I mean, there is an incredible struggle behind every story, but like Nike, for example, when you think of Nike, there's a certain image that you have and we all have mentally. And we think of a really pristine brand. We think of the mm-hmm. world leader in athletics, um, but that is not how it always was. And there is an incredible story behind Nike. And so it's just like that that sports figure that you know you see in the football field. I'm a huge Peyton Manning fan, and you know we look at Peyton Manning winning his last game for the Denver Broncos in the Super Bowl in 2016. But what we don't see is all of the decades, all of the years, just all of the work that went into that. And so when you see things on social media, you know, you're seeing the polished product, if it's even real. And what you're not seeing is that, you know, all of the years, all the consistent effort. But when you look at adversity, you know, and this has been a big shift for me, where when you start to look at problems and challenges and adversities 
as opportunities and as blessings because it gives you the opportunity to grow as a dad or as a parent, as a business leader, um, work on your patience, your maturity. And at that point, you're going to become unstoppable because mm -hmm. everything that enters your life is going to be a blessing. And if you take that approach, nothing is going to be able to slow you down or stop you. Yep. Mindset is everything. I think that'd be a really good uh, topic for us to dive deeper into on a future episode. Mindset is everything. I can see it already. Well, we definitely have, you know, a lot more to talk about on this subject. I know we have some close friends that have varying um, views on some of this stuff. It'd be fun to have, you know, kind of a fireside chit chat, maybe on one of our future episodes with some of those yeah. people as well, just to get different perspectives, because this is just one side of it. And um, more than anything else, I just think it's so important that we just are talking about it and just bringing it, um, you know, into a public conversation um, here, but also just, again, at people's um, home uh, dinner tables with their families, just really just having this be more of a topic of conversation to hopefully just start to, you know, get a little bit better with our intentionality with um, not only the decisions we make, but also just uh, getting rid of that stigma. I know you had talked about that earlier. And I never really responded on that point, but just how, you know, being a, a plumber is a very respectable, admirable career, being a, you know, a tradesman. And, uh, there's just so many careers out there that make a ton of money, by the way, that just yeah. are looked down upon, or I don't want to say looked down upon, but they were just not what our, in our, in our day and age, when we were getting ready for college, it was just, it was, you know, just something that we didn't want to even consider yeah. because it was a little bit of a knock compared to following everybody else and doing the, the, the college route. I think what you're saying is, you know, we've been trained to put labels on certain things. And sometimes mm -hmm. we put labels on ourselves. And whenever you put a label on something, some experience or yourself, what you're really doing is just limiting yourself or that experience. And and that's the reality. Like, you know, you, you can be just a plumber or you can, you know, own a business and be a plumber. plumber. Exactly. And, you know, exactly. there are, there, you don't have to put any limits on anything, you know, yourself. You know, when I got, when I, when I transitioned into mortgage, I had, you know, I, I'm very introverted and I had put a label on myself that, you know, I'm not good at socializing. I'm not good in person. I don't know how to network. And I believed that for a lot of years. And finally, I started, you know, developing those skills, reading books, going to networking events that were extremely uncomfortable. And it's a skill like any other that you can learn and develop. And I learned how to do that. And I tore that label off of me. And that, and that taught me I will never put another label on myself ever again. Yeah, no, I remember you telling me one time about when you first were having to do some of these networking events, just sitting in your car and not wanting to even go inside. And I can relate to that because I'm more introverted than you, you are even, I think. And um, just how much of a overwhelming challenge that probably felt to you at the time, but, you know, perspective is, you know, one thing, you know, fast forward a few years and just looking back at that. And now, I mean, I would never have guessed that you're introverted, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's, it's about the person that we get to become. And so when you do challenge yourself, you know, what you mentioned earlier about getting out of your comfort zone, learning to develop disciplines and do them consistently. It's not about how much money you can earn. It's not about how high your income can be. What it's about is the person that you have the opportunity and the responsibility to become because you owe it to yourself. 
You owe it to past generations. You owe it to your parents. You owe it to future generations. You owe it to your community. We all do to be the very best, most mature, most complete individuals that we can. Mic drop. I love that, dude. That's awesome. Well, as I'm sure everybody else could also uh, tell just from listening to how passionately you've uh, talked about a lot of these points, um, very inspiring for me. And I'm, I'm hoping that a lot of other people got a lot of value out of this as well. Um, definitely something we're going to be talking more about in future episodes, guys. So with that being said, if you have any questions or any specific topics on this or any other um, topic, whether it be in business or just the self-improvement space, really anything at all, um, feel free to you know leave a comment below or shoot either of us a DM on social media and just let us know. We'd love to interact with you guys and just continue to create more of a community around this podcast where it's not just Ben and I each week talking about different topics. It's really just more than that. Right. It's building out a, a community of people that want to better themselves, but like Ben said, also better the community and just really elevate everybody else around you. So that's right. Ben, I'll let, about uh, you or me getting on our soapbox and preaching. Um, the reason that I'm so passionate about this, like you is because the things that we're talking about, it's not taught anywhere. It's not discussed anywhere. These are conversations that aren't happening in school. They're not happening at the family dinner table. These are conversations that are important that need to be have. Um, and we got to get the word out and we want people to be in this community, talking about this, engaging, sharing your story. I have a lot to learn. I know you do too. Like, you know, I, I want to learn as, as well. So it's up to all of us to learn, to grow and to build together. Love it. All right, you guys. Well, hope you enjoyed this episode. Looking forward to another one next week. We'll talk to you guys next Friday. Until then, thank you for joining us on the Pursuit of Progress podcast. On the Pursuit of Progress. On the Pursuit of Progress podcast. Have a good one, guys.